Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. This special Reboot Republic was recorded live at the Mental Health Reforms Coalition Conversations. Uh, Rory was asked to facilitate a conversation on housing and how it uh, impacts on mental health. And I do think it's a fantastic conversation with a brilliant panel. I want to thank uh, the, the folks at Mental Health Reform for inviting us along and allowing us to record uh, something that you don't often hear include from stakeholders, tenants and people who are marginalised by our society and the, and the housing crisis in what was a safe space. And I think, you know, they, Rory did a great job facilitating it, but I want to thank Mental Health Reform for facilitating the entire event and, and again for inviting us along. If you're listening to these podcasts and you enjoy them, you get something out of them, please give something back. How you do that is you click the link in the podcast you're listening to right now that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise It's there on your phone screen. A few quid a month helps us keep these conversations going, helps keep the mics on, and we will be able to do more in 2023. We need your support to keep this show on the road. I want to thank everybody for all the feedback over the year. It's been a tough year. We've had a lot of loss in the tortoise shack, and there's not a day that goes by that I don't miss uh, Dr. Vicky Conway. Um, but we love doing this, and we and there are thousands of people listening, so the message is getting through. It is having an impact. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for liking. If you can, please support us. Please join us. Come on board. And I won't delay you any further. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, folks, and welcome to the special edition of Reboot Republic. Uh, this was part of the Mental Health Reform Coalition Conversations where uh, Rory moderated a panel and I had to uh, try and get the mics uh, lined up to to bring you the audio of the event. I really do think it is a brilliant conversation, well worth your time. Uh, before we go there, if you're listening and you aren't a member, please, 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 please go to patreon.com forward slash tortoise The link is in the podcast you're listening to right now. I won't lie, we're struggling as a platform. We are struggling to keep the mics on, the conversations going. We've seen a huge uplift in people listening, which is fantastic. But unfortunately, the cost of living crisis has really started to bite. And we've seen our support fall off a cliff. So we could do what you helping us out. All you got to do is put your hands in your pocket once a month. It's the price of a fancy cup of coffee and it'll help us into 2023. We really want to keep doing this, but that doesn't happen without your support. And there's no other way to say it. We need your help. Uh, I won't delay any further. Enjoy an excellent conversation. And thank you to Bear Grogan for inviting us and to Mental Health Reform for all the work they do. Enjoy the show. Thank you, uh, Burr and Roisin, um, and I'm delighted to be facilitating this conversation. Really looking forward to it. Um, and thank you to Mental Health Reform for putting housing um, at the opening. It is so important in terms of an issue in mental health. And just to say as well, this has also been recorded for Reboot Republic, the podcast. So it will be going out as well, which is great. Um, and just to introduce the panel who are going to be part of the conversation, we have Sarah Hughes, who is Mental Health Program Manager with the Union of Students in Ireland. We have Martina Smith, who is the Chief uh, CEO of HALE, which is a housing association for integrated living. We have Dr. Suzanne Deneef, who is the Head of School of Humanities, the Waterford Institute of Technology. And we have Aon O'Hanahan, who is a HALE tenant as well. Um, and so... Just to, I suppose, put a bit of context on this, um, the housing, I suppose, crisis in many ways is a mental health crisis. 
And, you know, anyone working in this area, as, you know, many of you are or living it, know that the housing issue um, is deeply connected and impacts on our mental health and our well-being. And research I was doing for my book around the psychology of home and the meaning of home um, really kind of it unearthed to me and revealed something that, you know, I knew from work and research, but kind of the role of home uh, what's called the psychosocial role of home as a base in our lives um, is absolutely essential for our sense of ourselves, for our sense, sense of self-esteem, for our ability to go out and be in the world. Um, and there was an incredible book I came across by a French philosopher um, called Gaston Bachelard called The Poetics of Space, and I quote this everywhere. Um, and he, in it, he says that in order to be, we need a place to be. And it's as basic as that. Um, and when we think about all the different groups who are affected by the housing crisis, and I was, you know, I was thinking about it, when we look at, for example, you know, adults living at home, there's 450,000 um, adults living at home with their parents in this country. Um, some are disabled, some are people working, some are um, young people who simply just can't find somewhere to rent. And we know there are issues of on their self-esteem, their ability to live independent lives. And that ability to live an independent life is actually fundamental to ourselves as well and our, our sense of selves. Um, and then we look at, of course, the issue of renters. Um, we have now a fifth of our population are living in the private rental sector, which is actually a state of continual insecurity. They are living in a state of what's called ontological insecurity, uh, worried will they have their home in six months' time, a year's time, and that has deep impacts on your mental health. Um, and you look at then, of course, children and families in particular, um, and I write about this in my book, that I, I extrapolate the, the concept of uh, chronic stress, which we know a lot is talk about chronic stress at work, and its impact on your mental health. But we don't talk about chronic housing stress and what, how that impacts on people. Um, and I think we really need to and consider it, and particularly on families and children, and the, the uprooted um, kind of constant state of um, mobility that families are having to live in and move around. And then you go, of course, to children and families in emergency accommodation. We have almost 3,500 children in emergency accommodation. Um, and psychologists have looked at the impact on children of being in emergency accommodation. It is called an adverse childhood experience. It has lifelong potential damaging and um, limiting impacts in terms of behavior, mental health. And yet, um, as Peter McVeary said during the week, you know, where is the outcry? Where is the anger? Where is the sense that this isn't acceptable? And so much of the mental health conversation is around the kind of individualization of your mental health. You need to manage your mental health. You need to be responsible for it rather than looking at the structures and policies and system that is leaving people in situations where their mental health is being damaged, is being, um, you know, left in places where they are feeling um, simply with no hope. And I think we have to give hope. Um, and that's why I'm so glad that mental health is part of this. Um, and I think we need to put mental health central to why we need to solve the housing crisis um, and homelessness. And then, of course, the other 
um, group is, of course, travelers. We know traveler mental health majorly linked with conditions that travelers are living in um, and also was mentioned direct provision and refugees as well. Um, and one of the, the key areas we're going to talk about today as well is disabled people and the new housing strategy for disabled people and how, for example, around housing policy, the shift from the building of social housing to the use of the housing assistance payment has meant in research that I have done um, and others has shown that in the past um, there was housing, councils built housing, and the allocation of that housing was on the basis of need. Now, uh, disabled people, uh, migrants, people, lone parents, who are entitled to have social housing can access the housing assistance payment, but they have to go out into the private rental sector and source that housing. That means they're subject to discrimination, uh, private accommodation isn't suitable for uh, disabled people in many situations, and also we see this um, disproportionate experience of homelessness by those with disabilities, by lone parents, by migrants, in large part because of that shift in policy. Um, so my five minutes is up now, so I'm going to hand over to the panel, and I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Um, I'm going to start with um, Martina. Um, and a question for Martina. The new housing strategy for disabled people, um, 2022 to 2027, aims to support people with psychosocial disabilities to live independently and access secure, high quality and appropriate housing that facilitates their recovery. What are your hopes for this new policy and what barriers make it difficult for people with mental health difficulties to access housing, and how can we address these challenges? Thank you. Three-part question there. Yes. I try and tackle, I have my notes. I'll remind you if, if you're I'll refer back not following notes. at all. Thank you. Um, so Hale is an approved housing body. We have about 450 tenancies, and we provide not only social housing, but also the mental health tenancy sustainment support. So we cross over um, two key areas, um, providing that whole wraparound um, service to, to our tenants. We also provide services to keep other people in their tenancies. And for us, the, the housing strategy, we have worked under that for the last number of years, and, and that's been a key policy for us. Um, we delivered 30 properties with 70 tenancies, working with the HSE under stock transfer there, um, with a view to giving people independent tenancies within their homes. Um, I think the policy itself was really positive. Um, it has moved us on quite a long way. I think we still have, have a, lo a long way to go. I think there's still many barriers. Um, but I suppose the hopes for that strategy would be that the, we continue with that good work. Um, for the first time, we had everybody around the table who needs to be there. We had uh, local authorities, um, HSE, and the key policy makers and drivers. And we need to keep that conversation going at all levels, not only at, at the policy driver level, but then through our services, through our front line, working together. And also, you'll hear from Adon, um in a wee while, um, 
bringing our tenants and people with lived experience into the, into that conversation is key, and I think that's um, a good way forward. Um, I'm hopeful for that the strategy will um, allow us to provide more homes. Uh, um, I'm delighted to see that it's aligned with housing for all. Mm. Um, but there are challenges around the delivery of housing for all as well. But I think that's that's a good step that it has that connection across and that housing is is seen as key um, and fundamental uh, to uh, I suppose supporting people with mental health difficulties. Um, in terms of the challenges for uh, people accessing housing, I, I think the whole pathway um, to housing has a number of challenges. Uh, I emailed the team yesterday and just to talk about actually people getting onto the housing waiting list, yeah. that's still a problem. It, there's still a huge proportion of people with mental health difficulties who are not accessing the housing waiting list. And that's the first step. And why, why is that? I, I think it's, it's unawareness. Okay. Um, we've got a lot of people, hidden homeless, people living at home, not being aware that they have rights to go onto the uh, waiting list. Um, I think there's been a lot of work done through the first strategy at, at local authority level, at that frontline level, at allocations, um, to try and pull out that information. But I think there's a piece of work that we're trying to do, but I think everybody needs to do from HSE and maybe mental health reform is that awareness, yeah. publicity about you have a right to uh, a tenancy and to a home and also to help people get through that process. But you know, that process can be difficult and it can be form filling and I think working on the first strategy, we had staff who helped tenants get onto the waiting list. So yeah. That works. Um, there's also the process of, we find sometimes when we allocate a home, moving is quite stressful. Yeah. And you know we've had circumstances where where people have said I don't want to move I don't want to to go, and we've had to s sit back and say right, let's take our time at this, let's um, take you through the steps and get you into your home. So it's acknowledgement that the process can take a, um, a little bit longer as well. Um, I, I think one of the key barriers for Hale. Uh, in particular, is the provision of housing. Yeah. Um, we really need one-bed apartments for the people we deal with, and they are like hen's teeth. Yeah. Very difficult to find. We're, we're, you know, housing is is in crisis at the moment, and I think it will be worse for people who require one-bed properties going forward. And we've been strongly advocating that every new development should have an element, <coughs> excuse me, should have an element of, um, for disabilities under part five, and in particular some units for people with mental health difficulties, because it, it also sits in with our ethos for integration yeah. into the community. Um, so I, I think that's very key as well. Um, yeah, no, I think that's, it's really, um, I think it's really important and, and in terms of, uh, you know, the, uh, what you talk about there, the ability to access housing and understanding that housing is a right 
and you know that people have an entitlement to this because part of i think the the culture and sort of ideas out there is that you know people don't have an entitlement to a home and that you know it's about you being able to afford it and if you can't afford it you're left but of course you know people who face challenges and you know and are particularly vulnerable or um you know face then you know people do need support and you know lots of people need support and it, do you think something needs to change about how we see that mm -hmm. in terms of social housing and housing? Absolutely. You know, the first step is to get on the waiting list. You're not going to get anything unless you get on get on the waiting list, unfortunately. Yeah. And then the, the other problem is then there's nowhere to go from the waiting list, yeah. which, is, which is the, the second problem. Um, and also, I think, you know, I've, I still come across stigma in yeah. terms of, housing and the delivery of housing for people with mental health difficulties yeah. um, and that's something that we also try try and, and deal with again but I think the solutions to that is you know sharing our good news stories you know sharing how things have worked really well in the past um, advocating we all have a voice in the, in the organizations we work in to advocate strongly through media wherever we can for people with mental health difficulties. I think that's that's quite important as well. Great. Thank you, Martina. And we might come back. I think the stigma question is, is a big one, an important one. And um, Dr. Suzanne, Denise, in terms of, um, you know, in WIT, as we would have called it, uh, um, the Waterford Institute of Technology, um, which now, of course, is the Southeast Technological University. Am I right? That's correct. That's correct, yes. Um, showing my, see, my true uh, affinity to my hometown of Tremor. Um, the, you and your colleagues um, uh, at WIT, uh, Waterford Institute of Technology, evaluated a new innovative program called START. And START is a support model for mental health service users to access and sustain housing through local authorities or approved housing bodies. So what are the benefits of this model and what do you think is the potential of it going into the future? So Rory, thanks very much for that question. I suppose to set the scene, yeah. I'd probably explain what START stands for. It's sustaining tenancy and uh, recovery targets. And it was funded by the Service Reform Fund. So the Service Reform Fund had to stream community living. And in each CHO, um, a program manager for housing was, was put in place. So in the CHO5, Southeast Community Health, the program manager, Anne Barrett, was the, who had been a principal social worker, she um, collected data from all the social workers in the mental health services to see, well, what were the housing needs of those who were within attending the mental health services? And from that data, she identified there was a major need to meet the needs of a large group of people who were attending the mental health services, but who were living, who were either homeless or had precarious housing situations mm. or um, were in, uh, say, uh, hostels, mental health hostels, who really should be out living in their own home. Mm. And Rory, you articulated really well the importance of home. And likewise, that the whole focus in the Service Reform Fund was to ensure that these people got that home. Yeah. And Martina, you mentioned about an interagency and the importance of interagency approaches. And the START project was very much about an interagency. So what happened was you had the mental health teams working with the local authorities, working with the approved housing bodies to, to identify suitable properties and suitable tenants for those properties and to put in place and work with the people who are moving into those properties to give them the supports that they would need 
so that they could sustain the tenancy and benefit from having that home. So what we were asked to do down in what is now SETU, we were asked to evaluate it. So what we did is we collected data from all of the stakeholders. So we talked to those in the local, we did um, a survey with those in the local authority, the mental health services, the approved housing bodies, and we gave a questionnaire to them and we asked them what they felt about the structures and the processes and the outcomes that were emerging from this DART program. And we also um, sent a survey to those who were supported living in their homes, supported by the START programme. So at that time, there was 35 people living out in their homes, uh, getting the support of the tenancy support workers. And we um, sent a survey around to ask them their views on, uh, you know, what it was like having their own home. And uh, we also interviewed uh, the service users. Uh, So nine of the service users agreed to be interviewed. And we got really good data in the sense that we got a picture of what it was like for them to be living in their own home. Uh, These people, what they described was how transformational it was for them. Mm. They really felt that, uh, they described their previous living situations and how they'd felt and how unhappy they'd been and how it had impacted on their mental health and their quality of life. And they described now they were in these new homes and they felt that they had a chance now to integrate into society. They felt that they um, could become part of communities. Uh, they, they really, really needed the support, however, of the housing support worker. Sometimes it was just for basic independent living skills, um, you know, how to pay a bill, how to, you know, mm. maybe cook something fancy if somebody yeah. was coming to visit. But it was also the housing support worker supported them in terms of uh, guiding them towards maybe education programs or maybe helping them advocate for them if they needed particular support with their landlords. So from our perspective, when we did the evaluation, what we really saw was the benefit to the people who were out living in these supported uh, um, tenancy Yeah, yeah. it's incredible, um, I suppose, the importance of research like that, that evidence base of actually doing the the detailed analysis. And what did the, in terms of the stakeholders then, the local authorities, the housing association, what did they come back with then? Uh, they, they, They really valued it. Uh, they, the local authorities uh, said that they worked with the mental health services and they gained an understanding of how they could uh, support tenants who needed, who had mental health challenges. The uh, mental health services themselves said that the tenants who were out in these homes really benefited from it. They didn't seem to need as much support. They didn't seem to have to have as many appointments. They, they saw that these people were coping better with having, have, having their own home really benefited mm. the mental health. Yeah, yeah. And so in terms of going forward then, what do you think about that as a model, the start and I what? Think, I think it's essential. There are a whole cohort of people who really would benefit from this. And uh, notwithstanding the challenges in getting these houses on, that was a major thing that came up in the findings. We needed more properties, more people needed to be housed and supported in their housing. Uh, it's definitely something that is essential for the services. And um, and the interagency approach needs to be continued. Uh, what was very important was having the structures in place and having uh, the, the criteria and the decision-making uh, frameworks in place so that the correct people could be identified and facilitated then to be uh, supported in their housing. 
Yeah, yeah, very good. Well, listen, that is again really, really interesting and and hopeful in terms of you know model that is there to be to be rolled out. Thank you, Suzanne. Thank you. Um, I'm going to go to Aidan next. Aidan, in terms of um, you've been working with Hale um, with a Hale tenancy support officer for a number of years. Um, how did you get first get in contact with Hale, um, and what impact have their services had on your own life? Well, uh, I was on the housing list uh, for nine years and was going nowhere. Hale got involved. I don't know the exact mechanism how you got involved, but they got involved. I was housed in about two months. Yeah. It's absolutely amazing. Um, I rely heavily on my notes, and then we can yeah. have a few questions. Absolutely, yeah. Right? Go so for it, go for it. Grand job. So as a person managing my mental health, I have to avoid what I call stressors. Stressors are any situations that can cause stress, which will have a disabling effect on my positive mental health. As you can imagine, housing uncertainty is a huge stressor. Mm. For positive mental health, the three S's are important. Safety, security, and stability. For many years in private rental, these factors were absent. Uh, a permanent tenancy in Hale has been a godsend. Yeah. It's been huge, it's been transforming. Um, my apartment's a small, beautiful, and it's become my home. The area I live in is quiet and comfortable, with no, which is in stark contrast to some of the private rental properties I have encountered. My neighbours are nice, and there's no antisocial behaviour or anything like that. Uh, the apartment is a perfect base. Since getting my tenancy six years ago, I've been able to go on to further education. I've completed a level five horticultural diploma and went on to achieve a horticultural degree in uh, the Botanic Gardens, which was actually run through WIT, <laughs> now that you're here, <laughs> right? None of which would have been possible without having a safe place to study and secure roof over my head. I also, on foot of moving out to Monkstown, I got a job in a local garden centre. I have a little part-time job, which I've been at six years as well. I got it just after I got my uh, tenancy with Hale. As regards Hale itself, I have uh, monthly meetings with my key worker, Shane. These meetings usually have a, involve a coffee and a chat. If I have any issues, uh, they're usually dealt with very quickly. Hale also has a housing manager, Vincent Walsh. I'm in contact with Vinny quite a lot. Um, again, if anything needs to be done, Vinny's on hand and it gets sorted very quickly. Um, I'm also involved in the Hale Tenants Forum, which meets on a monthly basis with Louise and Vinnie and a few tenants. Uh, again, anything that needs to be brought up is brought up. One of the main things about the uh, Tenants Forum is everybody's very happy with Hale. There are very few issues. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of good situation to be in. Hale have also done some gardening on some of their properties and a plan to do more in the new year. This is something I'm very interested in. Uh, my hope would be to open a horticulture workshop uh, for Hale tenants. That might actually come to pass because we've got a premises out in Tala and I'll be meeting the guy um, after Christmas. And then lastly, I'm involved with uh, Hale's peer support, peer support advocacy for which I have one client. Uh, so Mark is the client. Uh, he's a tenant with Hale. He's a gentleman who's had mental health issues. We we meet once a week. It's never anything big or huge, mm. but we do have, we can talk about our shared experience. And so it's nice to have someone on your side with that, that knows all the ins and outs of mental health and the impact it has on your life. And that's pretty much me. Thank you, Aidan. Yes. Just, it, it's fascinating. Um, my brother actually did that horticulture course as well oh, in Botanic Gardens. Yeah, 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 yeah. He absolutely <laughs> loved it. Um, the Waterford connection as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, just that the, in terms of housing, you know, and going from the private rental, yeah. um, into Hale. I had, 
so many experiences of really, really bad private rental places. The last one I was in just before I got in with Hale was lovely. Yeah. The landlord was really, really nice. The apartment was nice, it was spacious, it was clean, it was well maintained. Uh, fantastic. Then I got my Hale tenancy and I was up in the supermarket one day and I met one of my neighbours and she says, yeah, the apartments were sold. Yeah. So you've been out in a year. You know, you would have I mean? been you would have been gone out. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. So, and uh, that was one of the more positive experiences of private yeah. rental. Um, really, it was very difficult. It was very difficult even to get a place because you'd go and basically there'd be a young professional who'd get it first, a mm. woman would get it first rather than a single man. Um, all these, you'd be kind of way down the list. Yeah. Yeah. So it was hard to secure private rental and then even the private rental properties were very low standard yeah and how would you you know with thinking about it you know and reflecting on it how would you see that impacted on your mental health in comparison well, hugely, to hugely hugely because that that the security of a permanent tenancy is something that can't be undervalued it's a huge huge boom like i say once i had that tenancy i was out i had my apartment i was able to stop and think Okay, what do I want to do? Mm. I want to do further education. I was able to do that. Um, so the degree was quite full on, as you can imagine. So I was able to come home every evening. Had a corner of my apartment, had a little desk set up with my laptop. I was able to do, you know, do my studying, do all my assignments mm. and stuff like that. And all that contributes to your mental health. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it absolutely does. And that, that sense of stability um, to be able to not be thinking yeah. about that. And I have students myself who, who say, you know, they're being evicted in the middle of their yeah. studies and going, you know, yeah. how do they concentrate and yeah. that in terms of um, in terms of that. And just then in terms of the support workers, how kind of important are they? They're great. They're great. So, like I said, I meet Shane about once a month. Generally, if I want anything, and I have very few issues with the property, yeah. uh, I can ask. Uh, I can ask Shane. Shane then will put me in contact with Vinny, and it can be sorted out. Um, I don't need a whole lot of support. Mm -hmm. I know there are other tenants that would need a little bit more support, and I know that that support is available for them. Yeah. And we see a lot of that in the tenants forum when you meet the other tenants. So, Hale do offer a, a kind of wide raft of supports. I just cherry pick what I need, you yeah, know what I mean? But yeah. there, there are more supports out there for people who are maybe a little bit more vulnerable, a little bit more isolated and stuff like that. And does it feel like a community? It does, yeah, it certainly does. Like, the, yes, the tenants forum where we meet and have a chat, uh, catching up with Shane and that, uh, and, and definitely with Mark, who's my uh, peer support client, uh, definitely feels like a community. And also, uh, I feel that I'm actually contributing to the out, the general community as yeah, well. Yeah. By, you know, by studying, by having a job, by being out there, by being talking to people and talking to people about mental health and kind of raising it in a way. Great. Great. Well, listen, thank you so much. No Absolutely. Um, really, thank you for hearing that, the, um, and for, for being here. And I'm sure, yeah, it's all stressful for all of us yeah, yeah. <laughs> to come yeah. up and, and, you know, so thanks. Um, okay. I'm going to go to our last, uh, panelist, Sarah Hughes. Sarah, um, 
Um, in terms of, we've seen this year how the housing crisis has affected everyone, um, from families and migrants to students. Um, the accommodation shortage has reached a point where students across the country now are at risk of homelessness. Um, and of course, you know, as I spoke there, I've seen it in my own classes, students, huge commutes, um, and not even been able to turn up for classes because they can't find parking, because they can't stay somewhere. And um, we've, you know, students aren't even taking up courses. What things do you think, how is that impacting on students' mental health and well-being? I think it can't be underestimated how much it's it's impacting on students' mental health. I mean, you know, obviously COVID had a massive impact on society as a whole. But for students, um, they were hugely affected in two ways. First of all, they all had to move back home because campuses closed. Um, and many of them were affected by not having jobs because a lot of them were involved in the retail and the service industry that just completely shut down. So they were not earning through the whole of COVID and were having to try and, you know, deal with being a student while in their family home and, you know, maybe not having space to study or do exams or that sort of thing. And we did see an increase in student distress during that time. And I think there was a sort of a feeling once lockdown ended that, you know, everything will go back to normal and it'll be fine. Yeah. But I mean... Students are, are pretty much locked out of the private rental market between the high cost and the lack of supply. Um, so what they're faced with is privately owned student, purpose built student accommodation, mm. which is still quite, there's not enough of it and is, it is still very expensive. Um, they're faced with, you know, couch surfing on friends or fa- relatives couches. They're faced with, you know, we saw a big push this year from alumni offices and students unions putting calls out for digs, which, yeah is a risky thing for a student to take on because they have no renter's rights if they are living in digs. Um, and it is still quite precarious because most dig setups are from Monday to Friday, so they've nowhere to be at the weekend. And there's a presumption that every student has a family home to go back to on the weekends. Mm. Um, or, as you say, they're faced with ridiculously long commutes. Um, not all campuses, are, well, particularly outside of the bigger city hubs, are well served by public transport. So those students that drive are, you know, they're having to arrive at stupid o'clock in the morning to get a parking spot or they're being ridiculously late for class mm. or they're facing the decision of having to defer or drop out of college. Um, and we are seeing a huge increase in, in student distress continuing on post the kind of lockdown of COVID. Um, I was recently on a campus uh, visit and there, there happened to be a drop in counselling session being provided at the time and there was literally standing room only in the waiting room. Um, not all of those students would be able to be seen in that, that period of time because on the flip side of things, we aren't well, well enough serviced in the student mental health professions. And so, you know, we were struggling to meet student demand before COVID hit. Yeah. And now everything is just kind of more pressurized than it was before, really. Yeah. And if you look at it, the, in terms of students and that, how do you think it's impacting on their education? I think it, it's impacting quite negatively on their their education. As Aidan was saying, you know, that need to have a base where you can go and like, well, the college library is there. It's not open at all hours and often it can be very full. Mm. So you need to have a space where you can go and you can work on your assignments. You can study for your exams and you can just have a space to feel safe and be able to switch off, prepare a meal for yourself, um, you know, and just kind of shut out the world for a while. We know um, from research that, you know, the period that for which most students are in college is that early adulthood phase. It's a really key developmental phase where we know they're a high risk population for developing mental illness, regardless of all the other stressors of being a student or otherwise. Yeah. Um, so being able to have, you know, downtime, rest, 
a place to engage in self-care or even just have a base from which they can keep their stuff. They can go on a night out or meet up with their friends and have somewhere to come back to, somewhere they, they can have a shower that isn't like a gym or somewhere like that. You know, they're all kind of the key elements that go towards well-being for anybody, not just the students. So is the student experience fundamentally been changed then because of the housing crisis? I think to a large extent, yes. I mean, even if, you know, we're in an ideal world, a student has the full student experience where they mm. learn and they get their degree, but they also do a bit more developing. They, you know, create those social connections. They go and they socialize and they do their nights out. But like the social side of things is the first thing that drops off for students yeah. when they start to struggle. And yes, while that's the kind of the fun side of things and it's a first world problem in, in a sense, it does have an impact on student mental health. It contributes to things like isolation. It also contributes to things like stigma because they're not in those social situations where they can discuss how their mental health is doing. So I do think in many ways it, it has fundamentally changed the student experience. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I see it as well on campus with, um, you know, things that, you know, when, when I went to college and back in the Mesolithic period, um, the, uh, the, you know, the, we used to like have societies where you join like, a, I don't know, a, you know, a political group or a St. Vincent de Paul or a debating society or whatever you do, to, um, where students now don't even, they can't do that because they have to, they're literally on campus for a few hours and then they're gone again and they can't even stay and engage in talks, for example. I remember that as well. Evening talks were a big thing where you'd learn about other things that then your course, for example, you'd get involved. And I was even thinking around students and protest that students literally can't protest because they don't have the space or time that it's like they're either working or they're in campus and then they're commuting. And so it's like that whole kind of development of students as active citizens is being lost as well. Absolutely. And I think just to touch on the key point you made there about protesting, I think you see the impact of this on students with the number of them that in USI, we realized that that was an issue. So the mm. way we organized our most recent protest was a walkout during class time mm. because it was the only way we could feel that students could feel they could engage in that. And you can see by the numbers of people who did walk out and who, who interacted with us around that protest, the, the level of impact that this has. Absolutely. Like students want to be involved in societies. They want to have that full experience, but it's just not a realistic option for so many of them at the moment. And just one final thing in terms of young people, we're hearing now young people, you know, are talking about and the polls show majority in their twenties saying they're going to emigrate and um, because of the lack of housing. Like, how does that, do you see the future? in terms of housing impacting on people's sense of there isn't a future in this country. Absolutely. I mean, talking to, to students on campuses, not a lot of them want to emigrate. Some do for the experience yeah. of, of going and getting those new experiences. But it, there's a sense of, I feel I have no choice but to emigrate. Mm. Um, you know, and the, there's that feeling of wanting... They want to put down roots. They want to build a life for themselves. But just, you know, they're looking at when they come out at the end of their third or fourth year of their degree. They're not sure if they can afford a postgrad degree. They're not sure, you know, will they be able to even go into the private rental market, never mind be able to get a mortgage and buy a house. So what kind of future does that look like for them here then? And then they're hearing from their friends in other countries who are having a better and an easier time of it. And it's understandable why they would feel that pull then. Yeah. And what do you think needs to be done? I think, you know, within USI, we do feel that purpose-built, college-owned um, student accommodation mm. 
is the key um, factor here. You know, there is purpose-built student accommodation, but luxury accommodation is not what students need or want. Um, digs are not a long-term solution to the issue. Um, so, and, and, you know, some of the other speakers have, have touched on it. A sense of joined-up thinking, I think, is the key thing here, where the likes of the Department of Health, um, the Department of Education, the Department of Higher Education, need to come together and work together. I think there's there's still a kind of a lack of realisation of the, the bi-directional relationship that there is between keeping a student well and happy and keeping them in college and the potential f- as to what that could do for society. You know, there's mm. a cost to college when a student drops out. There's a cost to society when a student drops out. Keeping a student in, you know, decent accommodation that enables them to access the full of their education isn't going to solve all the issues students have. But it goes a long way to solving a lot of the issues that we have. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, no, it does. And, and in terms of that, thinking about the cost and, and, and the loss of the potential of that person as well and how that impacts on them. And, you know, we're seeing the, you know, the housing crisis and, and of course, inequality impact on um, people's, um, you know, mental health and then that does you know mean they are being lost as we describe you know to society to their families um just in terms of it, the mental health and housing do you um Suzanne think that are we moving towards a better understanding of the link between housing and mental health do you think oh absolutely i think that there's more and more awareness of it um at a local level in the services the the look the departments of psychiatry are starting to do research on it and they're starting to identify the challenges uh for example tala did study i don't know whether you're aware of this study where they identified that when they discharge somebody from the department of psychiatry they discharge them one in nine of them to homeless services or and so i think one in nine one in nine that was over an eight month period in 2018 that's the the study that was, uh, I was at a presentation recently, John Cameron presented on that. I think that there is far more awareness of the impact of housing and mental health. Um, you really captured it very well. I see it on the campus as well, the challenges that houses are posing to students' mental health. So yeah, I think there's more and more research coming out there that really is, is, is raising the awareness, and that's what we need. And of course, the, the issue as well is, you know, people with mental health challenges or mental illness, that if they're in a situation of housing insecurity or homelessness, it then compounds that mental health, you know, and, and their ability to overcome it, to, um, you know, get better or to manage. And, and we're seeing that housing itself is, is creating its own um, mental illness and mental ill health. Would yeah. that be right to Absolutely. say? Absolutely. I mean, certainly from the college perspective, we've never seen such demand on the, on the counselling services, never. Yeah. And uh, I think that's good. just going to keep rise because the policy is needed. We need that interagency thinking and interdepartment thinking. But it's going to take a few years for us to get there. We need prompt actions. You know, and the minister did announce that there would be grants available. Or colleges could uh, raise loans to build purpose-built accommodation, but that's going to take a few years. So I think we have a few challenging years ahead. Yeah, absolutely. We certainly do. Martina, in terms of social housing and public housing, do you think... Like, as far as I see, you know, the government say they're building, you know, never built more, but we know that they're still purchasing a lot of those from the market. And there's still, you know, housing associations are saying, for example, that they could build more if they had more land, access land um, and finance. Do you think that we're still in this situation where social housing is still stigmatized itself? 
and that we have to overcome that to really ramp up in terms of the need, because we're showing here, you know, what it can do and the importance of social housing as a key kind of mental health response, but also essential for society that we really increase the amount of social housing, even beyond what is planned at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of the models now that AHBs are looking at is it's, you know, social housing, cost rental, affordable housing. So it's that holistic approach. Um, I, I think what's important for, you know, Hale is prob probably there's, there's other homeless organizations with deal with mental health, but there's just us really at the moment having a voice for mental health. Yeah. And I think we can get lost in that, ho that whole delivery of social housing and get mm. the numbers. So it, it's important that we get our partners to deliver that message as well and how fundamental housing is for mental health. And it's about prevention, prevention of homelessness, prevention of mental health breakdown. And listening to some of the speakers today, I, I think, you know, he is going to be very busy in the future. You know, if, if this is what's coming up through our youth at the moment, you know, that that's going to escalate into a, a bigger problem in the future. Um, I, I think, you know, there is a strong lobby from AHBs in terms of access to sites and there's a, a site fund has been made available, uh, which is really good news. Um, 125 million is going to be made available in 2023 to assist AHBs and local authorities to get access to sites. We are heavily reliant on the private sector to deliver for us. So we need to get back to doing what we have historically been very good at mm. and can deliver under. Um, so hopefully that, that will change in the future. But again, it is um, something that we need to keep asking for and making sure our, our finance models stack up as well. Um, it, it's become more difficult to deliver um, housing down the country. Yeah, and um, because of the way our models are based on market rents, um, and then in Dublin we don't have the sites. Yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a getting that balance right, getting our funding models right, and and giving us the tools to mm. get on and deliver. That's incredible. That thought that there they can't build housing down the country because the rents aren't high enough. Yeah, the market rent. It's just the way our model. No, I know, I know, but that's the, the way yeah. the model has been created. Yeah. That. You know, it's, it doesn't justify. And again, it, to me anyway, it's, it's illogical that you would say that the provision of public housing is dependent on a financial viability model. It seems, and it, there, you know, there's, it comes back to in many ways, our resourcing of, of public things like public mental health services, public housing. It's still all, is it viable or not? Rather than going, you know, we have to do this. Yeah. I think. Absolutely. We have, you know, and, and, you know, we are working with many local authorities who are working with us to get around those barriers. The department is, you know, working with us as well. Um, so hopefully over the next couple of years, we'll see a change in that. But we are heading into a period where developers have stalled mm. at the moment because of costs and, and, you know, they're looking at their risks for the next couple of years as well. So that's, that's going to have a knock on effect. Um, I, I think certainly for, organizations like ourselves. 
Yeah, I quite, I'm struck straight away when you talk about risks. We think the risks of society we're talking about here in terms of mental health, the risks, to, you know, that we, what we value as, you know, financial risk versus actually the human risk that is, that is going on and the, the human catastrophe. I think it really is showing the need for the state will have to step up in ways that we haven't seen before to support the likes of, you know, housing associations and, and local authorities. Before I go to the floor, Aidan, do you have any thoughts on what we've been talking about there? Yeah, I think I think it's kind of two pronged. One is the government should get behind it and and make more units available, or when they're building apartment blocks, giving them a quota. Yeah. So I think from that side of it, also there's a fear and ignorance around social housing in some respects mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. And that also has to be addressed uh, through information being put out and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, it's kind of a no-brainer that we just need more units, really. That's what it falls down to. Yeah. We just need more units. And as Martina says, they're not building one-bedroom apartments. Yeah. And that's the, the whole thing about housing in Ireland. It, it, it's strange in that they're not building the one-bedroom apartments for, say, a single person. But then the other end of the scale is they're not building um, apartments big enough for families to live in. Yeah. Because, you know, some people don't have the expectation that they want the house and the garden. And some people would be quite happy if they could live in town with their family, yeah. you know, in the centre of town, stuff like that. So I think, yeah, I think the units have to be brought to bear and that also the the fear and ignorance around social housing has to be addressed. And what would you say to in terms of to someone who is expressing that fear and ignorance? <laughs> Well, <laughs> good one. Uh, what would I say to them? I would just give them the statistics and say, you know, if you have 10% social housing in your area, it doesn't mean that there's going to be antisocial behavior. Mm. It doesn't mean that there's going to be people who won't look after their neighbors or won't look after their own apartments or their own houses or something like that. Because there's a view that, you know, somebody's getting social housing, oh, that will just bring loads of antisocial behavior mm. and, and stuff like that. So education around it, I suppose, is probably the way to go. Um, and the other, by the fact of, by dint of, if you had more social housing in the area and then people saw that that social housing wasn't creating any problem, uh, that would educate them in that respect and that would give more credence to make maybe making more units available. Absolutely, no, you're, you're right. Martina, I'll ask you that as well, in terms of overcoming that fear and ignorance around social housing. What would you say to people? Um, I, I think it, it's showing the good examples. I think, you know, the historical view of social housing, it still impacts our current uh, delivery today yeah. and I, I think that you know there's AHBs in particular are very community focused and have lovely um, accommodation and like the bar for a hail property is you know would I live there myself yeah so uh, you know that's sort of standard that we look at now for social housing and I think it's breaking that down through social media and um, you know any opportunity that we can publicly um, and demonstrating the I suppose the good work that's done in, in terms of community and how we're getting people involved and looking after their own areas. Yeah, great. Okay, thanks a million to, to my panel. I will go to a question from the floor. I think we said we have one question. Time to take one if there's one question or comment. I think if I'm right. Yeah. I think we need the mic, the mic there. Up the front here.
Hi, I'm Justina. I'm mental health advocacy from Korja for ethnic minorities group. Um, and I'm actually have my own experience with mental health difficulties. And I just want to base it on that conversation, housing uh, crisis in Ireland and how people live in the house. And this is very big, huge impact, a huge problem. Uh, plenty of people uh, live in very damaged uh, condition houses. Uh, where it's fungal, damp, leak, uh, water on the wall, they sleep uh, without heating. And the landlords don't care. They don't um, respond the, when tenants are report uh, this condition. The fridge is damaged, washing machine. It's very bad. People are in when living this condition houses because they have no choice. They have no choice to go anywhere. Um, I used to apply it in 2009 for social housing list, and I didn't receive it any answer, any offer. I'm asked already um, because the house where I live is horrible. It's damaged and it's fire risk. Um, I just asked an officer from the housing department for the new um, for the new um, offer, new house chance to move, and I just. I was advised to checking online the, the, the offers, which is actually um, terrible condition and different part of Dublin, which I cannot move because I'm working and it's not uh, suitable for me on the travel to work. And I don't want to actually change this area as well where I live a long time. So uh, my question is, which any possible and a chance, how you managing you? Um, in your department, uh, the offers, how you can offer the, the houses, a new, um, new place to live for the people with mental health difficulties, with other health condition difficulties, which leave actually uh, migrant people who don't speak properly English. They actually long time alone in Ireland. Um, they have no interpreters. They don't know how to apply for, for the social housing list. They don't know how to ask for the new property. Um, how you um, working with ethnic minorities group to provide the service properly and to protect these people um, to give them chance to normal existing life? Yeah, really, really important question. Um, and it's absolutely something in terms of health wise, we know that again, it's something we've been talking about in a way, access to housing, but the actual housing conditions itself has massive impacts on mental health. You're absolutely right. And in terms of that, again, uh, the research I was doing was showing that where um, tenants, the landlord isn't responsive to issues raised, it has massive impacts on the tenant's mental health because they have no control over their own property for how they fix it. And so if the landlord isn't responding, then you're living in a situation of, as you say, dampness, mold, things not being fixed, you can't live. Um, it has huge, huge impacts. There was, um, we have in the house um, quite a commission of the health environment department uh, because uh, plenty of tenants are on the half payment and the social welfare payment yes. rent payment. So they just came, they were shocked on how on that condition with how we live in this house. But nothing happened. I heard report in radio the story, oh, because plenty how many people live in this terrible condition houses. There is no choice and nothing changes. And others actually don't care. Yeah. Advantage. 
Yeah, no, no. The issue around the lack of enforcement is a is a really big issue, and and it's um, something I might, in terms of migrants then and ethnic minorities and who are in many ways, you know, at the hardest end of, as you say, the lack of interpreters, the not knowing the system. Does any of you want to respond to that in terms of that? Um, I think just recently in Hale, we're actually uh, moving to better translation services, better access to our information in, in different languages. Um, having worked in the UK, you know, that was there all the time, where I think we're way, way behind that. And I think there's a whole piece of work that needs to be done across all services to give everybody the right information in the means or, the, or in their needs. Um, so I, I think there's probably a long way to go in, in terms of that. I, I think, you know, all of your all of the issues that you've raised there are, are so valid. But the problem is we, we, we've nowhere to move people to. You know, this people are living in substandard accommodation. Landlords are not being held to account whether or not people are tenants are reporting them to the RTB or using the um, facilities that's there to do that. Again, that they may not know to do that. Um, but there is actually nowhere to, for them to go, that the the waiting, the housing waiting list is massive. Very upset people. Um, I just come back every day, wake up and then go back home, even uh, after work, and I just never know the home's still there or are you okay? What happened? I mean, you know, different nationality people live, migrant people in my house. They all different, in one studio, live five guys. Mm. That, that that level of overcrowding amongst migrants. Yeah, we heard, you know, there was a story there last week of 26 tenants, I think, in, in a prefabricated building that a, a landlord had put in there. And, and it's interesting because the, you know, the discussion in the media all the time is about, you know, how do we keep all these landlords in place? And there's not as much discussion at all about the conditions that tenants are being left living in. And, and I think you're, you know, it's, it's, we really need to talk about that because as I said, like the numbers are phenomenal. You know, about hundreds of thousands of people living in conditions that are hugely destructive of mental health. Um, and it's something that strikes me and it's so important to the conversation around housing and mental health today is, you know, the government and, you know, generally in societies acknowledge, you know, mental health is one of the key things that we all need to address and, you know, accept it. And it's almost like there's a disconnect then between the factors that actually cause mental health and how we accept that they cause, you know, the, the mental health impacts of those and I think housing is because you know we think a lot about how do we try and break through around housing and get it addressed and get these things that they can't be ignored and I think mental health and showing the mental health impact is one of the things that could make progress and um, Suzanne what do you think about that? Yeah I mean you're raising really good points there the Irish Association of Social Workers published a paper just there in the last month mm. where they um, identified that a key element of their role is housing for, for people with, uh, for, for the immigrant migrant community and the challenges that they're facing. So what they're seeing more and more is the challenges that are being faced by uh, the in relation to housing. For that yeah. Group. Do you want to? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think we, we have a large number of international students who are, you know, struggling with some of the similar issues. We had a lot of issues, particularly at the start of the year, where, you know, a student who's coming in from abroad, they can't view a place before they have to agree to, to a lease. So they've no idea what they're, they're agreeing to. And like that, it could be atrocious conditions. And the sad thing is many of them take it because they feel that they're lucky to have that over nothing at all. 
which I think kind of sums up the sad, the sad state of affairs that the, the situation is in. Yeah, and it comes back um, to the point made by Martina um, about, you know, access to housing been seen as a human right and been seen as, you know, this is something that people should feel entitled to. And there's often a criticism of that word of entitlement. But actually, I think we need to twist it on its head and go, you know, things like housing, health, mental health, they should be entitlements. They should be human rights um, for everybody in this country and seen as that. And I think that's one of the big things, you know, we need to be continuously educating, informing, empowering that people do have a right to a home and not just the roof over the head, but as you point out, a decent quality home that from which they can have a life of dignity and, and you know, be able to in terms of live with well-being. Um, so listen, I'm going to thank my panelists, um, Martina Smith, Suzanne Deniff, um, Aidan O'Hanahan and Sarah Hughes um, for a brilliant panel. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Well done. Great. <laughs>